To whom much is given, much is required. A life of service is one of the most rewarding paths we could choose for ourselves. Community, family, and service. These are the words that come to mind when we think about our next guest. On this episode, we interviewed a self-proclaimed Bronx ambassador, Bruce Blue Rivera. What's happening, y'all? It is your boy, Jay. And it's your boy, KB. I like to think of myself as your neighborhood fashionista, favorite Bronx social worker, and one of the leaders of the new school. You may know me for hitting a dance move on IG, dropping life gems, or just stirring some shit up. And me, I'm a youth developer, hip-hop lover, retired comedian, and self-proclaimed old head. But when we come together, we are known as Live from the Bronx. And we have one mission. Our mission is to shift the narrative of the Bronx by highlighting Bronx creatives and change makers. Say that, Kev. Live from the Bronx, it's your boy KB. We are still the podcast that celebrates Bronx creatives and change makers. And today, today we are at Mission Helping Hands Pantry. So, so please mind us if you hear a little bit of noise in the background because we are here on a Saturday doing dope work. And there's folks out here. Facts, yo. What's happening, y'all? It is your boy, Jay. Looking forward to building. We got a very, very special guest with, with us today. Kevin just told y'all that we're out here in the middle of the work. My man just paused to spend an hour with us to record this podcast. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest. He goes by the name Bruce Blue Rivera. Now, this brother is a jack of all trades. He is an entrepreneur. He's a food and beverage writer. He, he goes by the name The Urban Mixologist. He is a self-proclaimed Bronx ambassador. This brother is killing the game and doing some amazing work in the Bronx community. Blue, what's happening, bro? How you hey, feeling? Thank you, guys. Thank you guys for coming and spending time today. Yo, we appreciate you. <laughs> to, take, to take an hour of your time when you're out in the community doing dope, dope work means a lot to us. So we don't want to waste your time. We want to kind of jump right into this. For those who might not know you yet, one of the things that we like to ask all of our guests is how do they identify? Obviously, Jay named a lot of your titles. Yeah. So for the listeners, who are you and how do you identify? Um, well, it's funny. I'm a, I'm a military brat. My dad was in the Air Force uh, and I was born somewhere in between their travels. Uh, so I lived uh, there for very young. I think I was one years old. Then we moved to uh, England, Ipswich, uh, and then Spain. And unfortunately, my parents split. And then I came. Uh, it's kind of the most blessing, cursed thing. Uh, I moved from a military lifestyle to growing up in the South Bronx in the 80s. So it's kind of... You know, mom, you know, came back home. Where? Grandparents, and that's, you know, I grew up in the South Bronx, Parkchester, yeah. 168 3rd Avenue, uh, Townsend Avenue. I've lived all over Gun Hill and Decatur. <laughs> but yo, yo, that song, I've been around yeah, the world. I, I, Where you been? I, 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 <laughs> that's my man. Like, don't know other sections of the Bronx. Like, I've yeah. lived Where? everywhere in the Bronx. You don't need a GPS nowadays, right? Nah, like, yo, what street you on? I'm there. I, I know it, you know, everything from Valentine to Zariga. Where? You know, I just, I was blessed. You know, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people like, damn, you feel bad. You came, you know, it, the Bronx when I was growing up was very different. We burnt out buildings and, you know, uh, you know, it was a real thing. You know, we were, we were suffering from a lot of ills at the time, but um, it also gave me context to mm. where we're at now and what other communities are going through. So I don't, I don't forsake that and I don't overlook that. You know, I think yeah. that's a special upbringing and I think we share Special people who in the Bronx from that time period, you know, we we understand what it's like. So we kind of yeah. Let me ask you something, right? Like I wasn't, I was born in '92, right? Yeah. So I wasn't even born in the '80s because you're a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be hating, all right? We still pop it. So one of the things that I always uh, hear about, right? We hit, we we know where the phrase "the Bronx is burning" came yeah. from, right? Yeah. But one of the dopest things that was happening at that time was the rise of hip hop. And so even though there was there were all these uh, burning buildings and there's a lot going on, we know the drug war was happening. At the same time, there was community. Yeah. There was there was hip hop. There yes. was resilience. There was people still coming together, man. T talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. Like, what was your you upbringing know, like think, in that time? It's crazy. But I think all of that great stuff was born out of necessity. You know, I think, you know, when you when you're hungry, you get creative. Word. Um, you know, when you don't have uh, things given to you, utilized, you, you create a way. Yeah, you know, yeah. You don't have a hammer, you create a hammer. Um, you know, it's, facts. You're not going to stop eating. You're just going to learn how to eat differently. Facts. Uh, and I think that's what happened. And I think 
the, the Bronx and the South Bronx resiliency um, really resonated in art and culture because guess yeah. what? Your creativity and your mind was still free. Right. You know, you could be poor, but you could have a rich man's mindset, you know, or, or you could be rich with creativity and art and be blessed with talents. And I think, you know, we had to do that. You know, the homes didn't have TVs, you know, yeah. to sit outside and cipher was entertainment, you know, to sit outside and paint on the wall or, you know, start breakdancing up, right. you know, like, you know, it was just kind of like, oh, that's cool. I'm gonna make up something new. Yeah, yeah. And it gave, especially the youth, something positive to do because it was something that they were creating. And I think most big movements and anything you do come out of uh, a sense of need or a sense of mm. uh, disparity, you know, mm. you gotta come up out of something. And, you know, it just happened to be that you know, what we use, the tools and the, the, the things we did to cope and to lead ended up becoming very um, marketable to the world many years later. Billion yeah. dollar industry marketable. <laughs> Multi-billion dollar right. industry. Yes. So growing up, did you have context for some of the things that you were experiencing, right? So obviously you said 80s in, in the Bronx, obviously the crack era, right? Yeah. Obviously there was a ton of poverty, burnt down buildings. At the time, did you know like, yo, this, this is not okay. Or was it just, this no, is just my experience. It's funny. It's, it's, it, what, I heard somebody say this once and it hit me. I said, you know, nobody knows they broke when you broke. <laughs> like right. if that's the only lifestyle you have, like you think everybody lives like that until you're exposed to a different lifestyle or right. you see somebody else doing differently. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. it's funny, I didn't know I was broke. I didn't know that, you know, the things that we were doing would, I thought everybody would do that. I would do that and, um, you know, I, I just think we just lived life. You know, we had fun. We played in the pump. And, you know, like that stuff was just normal stuff, you know, waiting online for food and all that stuff was just kind of like life. Um, for those listening to pump, that's that's a fire hydrant. Yeah, the pump, heard uh, it. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You might. It's summer. It's summertime now. Summertime oh, in the Bronx. That pump is is on I, and popping. That has been one of my goals. I have a, I have a 10 year old son uh, who doesn't live, you know, it, the lifestyle I did, of course. Word. But. My goal was to let him get hit by a fire hydrant pump more <laughs> as a father. Like, I just want, you know, I look at him and I'm just like, there's a lot of lessons we learned from that stuff. But, you know, we were resourceful. And I think, um, so in context, I think I didn't really have the context until I think I was in high school, junior high school. And, you know. You went to high school in the Bronx? I didn't, actually. I'm going to tell you what's so funny is mom tried to get me up out of here. Um, I, I went to 198, I was at Flags, you know, the castle. Oh, where? yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was doing, started junior high school there. And uh, funny enough, I had a, I was a year ahead and I was a little bit smaller than people in my grade, believe it or not. And- uh, When you say smaller, was that six feet? <laughs> no, <laughs> let me tell you, I, I, I didn't shoot up, man. I was, I, I, was, I was a year younger than everybody because I started school a year early. Yeah. But um, I got jumped in Cretona Park. Mm. I mean, multiple times. I mean, they used to steal bus passes. Like, it was a thing. Like, you, you had to get creative to get home. Like, Word. <laughs> Yo, like, I, I know that feeling. So uh, that happened, man. And, and, and uh, one time I got jumped in school um, and, and they, they messed me up. They broke my arm. And everything. Man. And so my mom was like, you know, I'm gonna lose my son messing around. And you know, you know how it is, the influence in the street, you know, that becomes as a teenager, that becomes a little bit more, you know, want to hang out. And especially yeah. with what's going on, it was very easy to fall into that lifestyle. And so yeah. my mother made an attempt <laughs> to try to get us out of, or me and I had a younger sister at the time, out of the Bronx and thinking that that was gonna be the, the way to heal it. So we moved to South Yonkers. Out of the fire pit and into the fire. Yeah. I guess the mom didn't finish the research. She was yeah, like, yeah, out, out the Bronx. Word, word, word. You know, so, uh, yeah, so I, I used to live down uh, right off Nepean Ave, right by School Street, Slow Bomb. Uh, so um, I'm not going to say it was much better, but I ended up going to a small high school called Tucko High School. Mm. Um, they had a football program, and uh, I was introduced to football when I was in uh, junior high school in the high school and uh, they had a good program. And, and my grandmother actually ended up moving uh, in that area and we used her address. I'm advocating that that's illegal and stuff like that, but now, but you know, trying to get a better opportunity. For the word, and, word. Uh, yeah, so I ended up, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not one of the Bronx Hayes boys, but I was always still in the Bronx, you know. You know, that was just, just the cards that I was dealt with. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think that's, and I think that also exasperated 
the, the divide of poverty because now I'm in mm. school in Westchester by East Chester and Bronxville. And yeah, I'm, like, yeah, I'm yeah. like, what do you mean people got cars at 16? Like, yeah. you, mm. like you got multiple sneakers? Yo. Like, that's it. Like, wait, like, wait. Like, you don't got like that, the school outfits and the, and the home outfits. Facts, facts. Like, that wasn't a thing. So uh, I learned a lot, man. But it also exposed me to a lot of different culture and different people, uh, different lifestyle, different background. So, yeah, yo. Th- th- thank you for sharing that too. Yeah, I think. Man. One of the things that I've noticed, right, just hearing a little bit about your story and then now, you know, knowing you and you you got your hands in everything, bro. Like, I'm, you talk about entrepreneurship, brand development, the way you've been able to maneuver to create, you know, a, a life and a career for yourself is super dope. So thinking about your upbringing, how did you, where did you start, right? So like, and how did you get involved with all the things you're involved with? So let's start, let's say the club scene. Right. That was your, I think that was like one of your first biggest yeah, uh, man. endeavors. <laughs> How did I, okay. I'm, I'm going to tell you that there's not, there's not something lost being raised your, your formative years in, in a, in a hustler society. Facts. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to take it. You know, you see people, you know, you see people buying things or, you know, that are attaining these goals. And, you know, I remember big thing was like having big systems into the Benzie, like, you, word, know, word. you know, all that stuff was, was, you know, you look at that and you're like, wow, I would like to have nice things and just being resourceful. So um, I think that that had a big part to play in it, you know, always looking for an opportunity. Mm. You know, I, the one thing I, I hate to hear is when people say there's no option or there's no out. Like, as long as you're breathing, there's an option. As long mm. as, as long as you got two, you know, working hands. And even if you don't, you got one working hand. If you're breathing, uh, there's an opportunity to make your situation better. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, you're going to change the world, but you can make it better for yourself. You hungry, yeah. you can feed that better, you know? And I think a lot of people don't give themselves enough credit or they get, uh, they doubt themselves. And I think that was one thing I didn't have the luxury of doing. You know, it was mm. just kind of, you figure it out. Yeah. You know, bread on bread sandwiches is the thing. You figure it out, you know? Where? Uh, so I think later in life, um, I saw opportunities like that. So very young, um, back in the day, there was there were these guys that used to hand out flyers. And I remember, I, I saw, we were down by St. Mark's, by the cube. And they, they used to stand there because everybody used to come out of trains and go to St. Mark's. It was like that city lifestyle, right? Where? So they were handing out flyers. And what they would do is they did have stickers or stamps you have to bring the flyer in order to get a discount entry into the club. They basically they would handle these things and you would get um, a certain percentage of every flyer that came back to the club. Yeah, Basic yeah. promotion starting day. Right. Yeah. And I remember I saw this kid doing, I was like, yo, that is the easiest job in the world. You just hand out a flyer, they bring it <laughs> to the club and then you get paid. Like, you know, uh, so I- And wait, wait, what time period are we talking oh, though? Man, we're talking late nineties. Oh, okay, late okay. nineties, I was about 16 years old. Um, you know, it was just a job that you can do that you really didn't need working papers. You know, I used to bag groceries and associated. And yeah. I used to put videotapes back at Fox Video in Parkchester, you know, rewind them, put them back, like little jobs. But this was like, I was in the city, like, you know, yeah. if you're in the Bronx, the city, you know, that means Manhattan, like, you know, yeah, it's yeah, different yeah. vibe. And uh, so, yeah, so I asked the guy and I was like, yo, how do you, like, where do you get these flyers? And, mm. and the guy was like, look, you know, here's a number. So he gave me a number, I called up and I was like, I, you know, I, I'm, you know, they were always looking for fly guys. The more yeah. fly guys you have in the city, the more, you know, that's how you get out. You know, social media wasn't a thing. A lot of people really at this time still didn't even have cell phones. So it was kind of like hand in hand. And I learned a lot about like guerrilla marketing at that time. Mm. You know, they were putting up posters and putting up flyers. And, you street know, teams. Street teams. Yeah, that yeah. was like the birth yeah. of street teams. So unknowingly, I was, I was part of that. So one of my first real jobs was with, um, Peter Gation of Limelight. Um, you guys have like, I think they made a movie Party Monsters and all this stuff yeah. about him. I've heard of Party Monsters. Yeah, yeah. so he, he basically was the, the man behind Limelight Tunnel. Uh, a tunnel? Yeah, that was, that was. That was Wild Times. Well, yeah, it was. was wild so, so I started handing out flyers. So one of the perks <laughs> of being a flyer guy would they would give you this card, no lie. And, and you can't even do this stuff now. It was a little card that said you were staff. Mm. Now, I remember I was too young. Like at that time, it was like 18 a party, right? And I, uh, you could use the staff card and it would let you into the club. So the first time I went into the tunnel was with this card and it was cool. Then I didn't have to wait in line. Yeah. Like, it didn't really matter how old you were because you were staff. Why? Because you were either coming in to get your check or, of course, obviously you grab your little envelopes and be like, uh-huh, <laughs> hey, uh-huh. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay a while. I'm going to stay a while. Yeah, so. 
So we would, uh, we would do that for a while. And, uh, but that was really how I got into like starting the club industry. And then uh, I realized you could work in multiple clubs. So I worked like Sound Factory and I worked like Cheetah, you know, just Cheetah. anybody that could, yeah, anybody that would, that would work. And then, uh, so besides handed flyers, I realized if you own the guest list, like if you were the guy that got paid, yeah. you would get a bigger percentage. And I was like, wait, I want to have my own guest list. And so that's how um, at the first started, um, I was in a club and I was telling somebody, you know, I had a, a nickname when I was a kid, Blue. Yeah. Uh, my best friend's mother couldn't speak English and um, she was taking English as a second language. And she just automatically assumed that Bruce, which you can't pronounce in Spanish, was Bru. And she was oh, Azulito. Uh, okay. So it's a nickname I had as a kid. And so I was like, they were like, well, what you, what you want your guesses to be? And I was like, Blue's guest list. And that, that was it. It stuck. It was something easy. And uh, at one point in time, I think I used to have 12 guesses running every weekend. Wow. And I would literally go to every single club to pick up money. And I would have my friends hand out flies and I would hit them off. Just yeah. I used to get my friends to do it for free just to get in the club. So let's talk about that, right? So like, it's so interesting because you talk about hustling. You yeah. talk about like the, the background, right? And being able to, to essentially... Think about like your you, the way you grew up and use those skills. We Kevin and I always talk about transferable skills, 100%. right? To say we're gonna take that hustle and put it into the club scene, and now all these guest lists, those are my hustles. That was it. You know what I'm saying? And, I'm getting that's, paid. That's really how it was. And you know, I was a football player at the time, so you know, it's popular. Yeah, and, you know, I would go to yeah. parties and I'm like, yo, I can get you in the club. I just bring and, you know, and I, 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 even at the time I would do Palladium in the Rochelle Club D, yep, yep, Club yep, Hollywood, yep. Extreme, uh, and then I started like, yo, we got. Like, let's do that Manhattan type thing, but let's bring it uptown. And, that, and that's what I was going to ask you. I wanted to ask you, what yeah. was the Bronx club scene like, right? So I'm a little, so I'm a little bit younger. So I'm 86. So like <laughs> the tunnel, I've only heard stories oh, from like some of my older people yeah, and stuff yeah. like that, but it was before my time. T tunnel was amazing because it was, a, it was a movement. It was, it was the only place that I think I'd ever seen all different types of lifestyles in one building. First off, it was huge. If you never went... Uh, the tunnel had like eight different rooms with eight different types of music and okay. different types of, uh, you know, they had, you know, uh, gay side and, and downstairs was hardcore hip hop in the same building. So you got drag queens on one side of the club and you got thugs downstairs and you got a main dance floor and you got uh, uh, drum beats upstairs right. and hero and like it was crazy. So just just the, the lifestyle was just amazing but everybody it was like a pilgrimage to the tunnel at the time yeah. because at that time i think the house dj was like flex mm. that's that's why they have the, those tunnel mixtapes yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. tunnel yeah. mixtapes yeah cap. it was uh i mean it was crazy like i can't tell you how many people we've seen perform live because i remember, I remember seeing we saw x there we saw we saw the locks we saw uh, uh craig mack i mean Buster rhymes uh, Lords of the Underground. Like, these are people who are, like, legendary now, yeah. but they were there, and I, it was a sweat box. It was, like, yeah. it was the one room that nobody wanted to hang out in the tunnel. That was the hip-hop room, because it was downstairs, it was hot, it was a sweat box. And, and they was probably just walking around, no security, probably oh, everybody was, was just in there. Yeah. It was, it was, but but things like that. So when that started happening, there was a club in the Bronx called Extremes, uh, Roombas. Uh, yeah, I used to go to team parties at Roombas. Roombas with the staircase downstairs. And it's crazy because you just keep going down. I'm yeah, like, if yeah. I forbid there was a fire or anything, <laughs> so it's, it's over. It's funny how you think about that now as an adult yeah. kid, you know. But um, the, the clubs uptown was all right. You know, you had like Riddlers over by, you know. You know, there was always like a vibe, but it, it was it was different now. And then New Rochelle was a little bit closer than like going over there down the city. And that's yeah. when we started having like some of the bigger clubs. Like I think Deep Hollywood and Palladium were like huge, mm. you know, they were like bigger than any club in the Bronx. So, and then you, you started seeing, you know, you know, people, girls or guys from a different neighborhood or, you know, like it was different. You wanted to see all the same people from the hood. So it was different, man. Um, but that, that's really how I started the promoting thing. I, it was really just kind of cutting my teeth at, at, and I always like to talk to people and I always like to engage. So it was, it was easy for me to do what I like to do and get paid for it. Mm. Uh, and then have this access, you know, like yeah. remember them little cards. I used to have staff cards for like five different clubs. Yeah, and I'd be like, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I was underage at the time too. So it was, it was just all came together, man. And uh, 
you know, I was, I was still in like high school. That's a, a beautiful thing. I, I can resonate with some of the party promotion stuff because that was a hustle that I had in, uh, in college. Yeah, yeah. It, I wasn't great at it because I was more into the partying yeah, yeah, over yeah. The, the promoting. No, I, no, I used to party. <laughs> but but it, was, it was like my Monday through Friday and just ready for Friday, Saturday night and all over again. But uh, that's really, I mean, how I got started. And I just started learning the business of it and realizing that, Okay, so it was like a hierarchy. So you had your fly guys were on the bottom and the posters and whatever. And then you had your sub promoters. And then there was the real promoters. And then there was mm. the producers. And I was like, wait a second. If that guy's making enough money to pay the bottom guy, $4 a head, $5 a head, or three, you know, whatever the breakdown was, uh, what is the next level making? Mm. What is the next level making? Facts. And that's where I need to be. And that's exactly. Yeah. And, and, I was, and, how, and how do I get there? And how do, yeah, yeah. Learning how to make a contract with the club and, and, you know, they get, you know, door receipts and percentage of door receipts and then bar percentages. And, yeah, you know, that's yeah. when things got funny. So um, I joined the military when I was 17, just kind of get out. I got hurt, uh, long story short, my football, I had some scholarships folded and then I ended up just leaving to the military. So I kind of got- What branch of the military did you join? Yeah, I was, I was in the army, but I think during there, I learned uh, how to be organized, how to be, you know, take all those skills I had, those promotion stuff and skills and, and just, you know, learn it. I was, I was a military police, so it was very organized. And at 17 years old, it, it really gives you structure. Yeah. I think that was something that was missing, you know, getting your paperwork ready, getting your, you know, learning about taxes, stuff like that, you know. I, I think that gave me a, a knowledge, but I just kind of, when I came back from the military, I ended up going to college. And I think that's where yeah. a lot of my older friends that were promoting back time became the, you know, the, the event producer or the head promoter. Yeah. So I just jumped back in with them and it was awesome running. I mean, me and like four of my boys, we ended up renting a house in Austin. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And we would drive to Beacon, Newburgh. Okay, Kipsy, yeah, And we yeah. used to throw parties. It's like an hour ride, right? We used to drive because uh. we were like, wait, everybody's over here fighting over the same clubs. And I remember one of my boys was like, yo, there's a club that holds like 500 people, but it's in Poughkeepsie. What is Poughkeepsie? <laughs> and, and how can we get there? there? And it was it was crazy because they so wanted that urban lifestyle. They so wanted to yeah. mimic what was happening downstate. And you basically had a group of like four or five guys that were from the Bronx that were like, you know, my other boys from Harlem, but you know, we were like, yo, let's go get this money. Like, Fact. and we, I remember one time we brought um, Batman Scoop at the time. He was on Hot Money. Batman Scoop. Yeah, no, he, uh, he was, he was working and through my relationships, we were friends with his manager at the time, MK. And we were like, yo, can we pay him to DJ a club? But it's like an hour and a half, two hours from the city. Yeah. And he thought we were joking. And I was dead serious. I think we paid him. No lie. I think it was like $800 at the time. But I mean, you you hustled, so we put together yeah, money, yeah. and he came, and I remember we sold out. Like wow. it was, it was they had never seen anything like that. Yeah, before. and we that's when we really became event producers. And so then we brought up like Jazzy Joyce, we brought up you know Flex at one point in time, and you know at that time I think we booked Black Rob, and then we started like oh, you know yeah, but we started taking so somebody like in the Bronx, you'd be like, oh this person in the Bronx, you'd be like nah. Eh whatever, like a kid free or like whatever. You'd be like, eh, I've seen them 500 times. But we were taking them to this place that they appreciated and they didn't get that. And th and I think that was us learning about uh, supply and demand. So yeah. then that's kind of like my progression when I became the event producer and concert promoter. So this is an important one. What was your crew name? A what? What was the crew name? The crew name. So it's funny, um, my, I, I used to tell you the whole blue thing. So I started a company, my first uh, entertainment was called Blue Entertainment. And we were doing mixtapes and everything. I, I think I found a mixtape recently that was, I don't know if you guys are familiar with DJ Rob Lowe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he did. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a, there's a Rob Lowe mixtape where we get shout outs, Blue Entertainment. Uh, we were doing <laughs> all right. So it's funny, I still have that. It's on CD somewhere. Word. <laughs> but we started realizing that building these relationships, especially with DJs and like building that crowd and the following, using that street marketing and just kind of learning how to market and build brands. So uh, yeah, it was my boy had black and white entertainment, it was blue entertainment, and that's how we started. Um, then it kind of elevated a little bit once I got into like concert and event production to New York City. And that's where New York City. I like Yo, that. Yeah, that's dope, man. So so thinking about all of that, right? Like yeah. all of these endeavors, how'd you get these other names, right? The urban mixologists, <laughs> right? And yeah, I'm gonna tell you, man, you know, there, there's no there's no plan, man. Um, so 
very early on, uh, I've always been behind the ball as a bouncer for a while when I first came out of the military. Uh, and I got, uh, during college, I got hit in the face with Corona bottle. So I was oh, right wow. And uh, I was out of work. I couldn't work. I had an eye patch. And uh, I was working at a bar called Liquid Lounge in uh, Rockland, New York. And uh, the owner was my friend. And so they did like, a, I think it was like a Thursday night. It's college night. They made a theme night for me. I was a guest bartender. So mm. I'll never forget it. And it was kind of for me to make money because I hadn't, I couldn't work. I couldn't, you know, I had to wear an eye patch for like six months. Mm. And it was, they made a joke of it and they came in, it was pirate night. So everybody's wearing iPads. <laughs> oh. But they showed love, man. And they were tipping me at the bar. And I kind of liked that whole idea of being behind the bar. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm, it's kind of like the hand to hand, the way I was handing flyers, mm -hmm. but now I'm handing you drinks, Word. making you laugh, and then I'm getting paid for it. So I was like, wait a second, something here. Uh, so that's kind of what sparked my interest in bartending. And I just progressed in bartending and, uh, I ended up working for a lot did you of teach a, Did you teach yourself or did you? Yeah, no, I, I did. I was really question. fortunate. I ended up working at an old Irish pub. This mm. one place. And I remember I showed up with a shirt and tie and everything. And I was ready. I was like, yo, I know how to make drinks and stuff like yeah. that. And I was like, yo, um, I need 20 cases of Bud. Uh, I need you to change this keg. And I was like, all right, cool. Uh -huh. And so I went up <laughs> and down and I'm like, you know, filling the refrigerator. And he's like, yeah, I bring them down and bring them up. And he was, yeah. and he was like, um, yeah, I need you to go get some glasses from downstairs. And, it, and I was like, yo, I'm a bartender. Like, you got me cutting lemons. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> my whole shift, I'm cutting lemons. And, and it's so funny because I didn't realize it at that time. I was learning the foundations of bartending because mm. a lot of people don't realize you need to know how to turn a keg. You need to learn how to cut garbage. Yep. You need to learn how to pour beer. You need to. And uh, so I, I learned on the job, man. And, and I, I got to say, I've always, if I didn't know something, if I was interested, I would take my lumps. Mm. because I knew I had to learn. And I think that that really resonated in my life, that if you don't know something, learn it, but don't be as uh, arrogant to know yep. and go in and say like, you know, it. especially yeah, yes. coming in, like learn, learn from people. And I think that's been a real big asset in my life. As I've, I've had really great mentors in life and really good trainers. Uh, and I think we take that for granted, especially in our community that, you know, people feel like you have to pay money yeah. for education, where most of the times you just got to listen. Yeah. Oh so, man, that's yeah. such a jewel right there. That yeah. listening, listening that's such a game changer. Thank yeah. you. Listening and and understanding that you don't know everything. You know, I think once you understand that, um, it, it becomes thank you uh, a valuable lesson that uh, you know thank you, you. got to learn. You got to listen sometimes. And somebody has been down your road at some point in time. You know, age is age is something that you know you can't you can't make. You can't fabricate age and time. You can't. And experience. And experience, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so basically that ended up getting me uh, through there and promotion and through all that stuff. I started working at a record company called People Records. And that's really where I learned more about console production, producing. I was a road manager. You know, I was a, I remember before I was done, so I had a background as an MP. Uh, so it's kind of like all these skills I had that kind of went there. And so I became, uh, I used my bartending skills and uh, they made me a GM of a club that he owned called Club Salute. Mm. Um, and I was a GM and head bartender. So that happened. I did that. And then I ended up opening my first club in Middletown, New York, taking that same idea. Yeah. Let's go up north where they need these things. I did that. Um, didn't work out well. It was a bad business investment for me at the time. I lost a lot of money and I kind of got knocked down. I lost my life savings and everything on that. Wow. But uh, I started working again. So I humbled myself and went back down and, uh, as luck would have it, there was a, I was working at a bar in Yonkers called It's really famous water down by the water, but it was famous for wrong reasons. It was violent. Okay. Like they were got two boxes and it was called Undisputed. And there was nothing but fights in this bar all the time. Yeah. It was like a known thing. I used yeah. to box in the gym with them. And they were like, you know, I know you know the bar thing. And literally all of our employees came from the gym. Okay. So it was like a known fact. Like you don't start a fight. Yeah, it's over. Undisputed. People would try. <laughs> so, uh, and that's what they were known for. So much known for that they ended up getting featured on Bar Rescue. Oh, uh, okay. because of violence. So I had left by that time, but they called me back to be uh, the manager again on film on on the show. And I was like, look, I don't really want to do that, guys. But they got me to do it, and probably one of the best decisions I ever did. What what year was this? Uh, this was in two thousand and four, five maybe. Am I making that up? 
No, it had to be a little bit after that, probably like seven. I think it was around seven. Okay. Uh, so we filmed. I was on Bar Rescue, and I met a guy named Russell Davis. Uh, and Russell Davis at the time was named the world's best bartender. You know, he did brought him in. Yeah. And he pulls me aside. And he's like, you don't work here. Yeah. And I was like, why? He's like, you got a lot more experience than, than the people, than the people yeah. here. And he's like, you know, what's the deal? Uh, and he kind of like took me under his wing. Um, and through him, I got to my first bartending competitions. You know, I was like, come on, I'm from the Bronx. We don't, yeah. we don't do that. And he was like, you're good. Just do it. And uh, when I did that, he got me into my first Bacardi competition, my first Hennessy competition. Um, and he's some dude from Texas, random wow. dude from Texas. Um, and I, I, that's really where I cut my teeth on the industry itself. Like yeah. not just being behind the ball, the liquor industry itself. Uh, and so I entered the Bacardi competition and uh, I was rated my first Bacardi competition. Uh, I was rated number three in the world. I was going against wow. people from Australia, from India. Yeah. And I didn't realize it, that my taste, my palate is so diverse from my upbringing, tasting Spanish food, Dominican mm -hmm. food, African food, you know, soul food, Word. all of that. So when I was creating cocktails, I had a very different point of view than somebody that went to French culinary school. And, you know, he was like, use that. And it, it was valued. And, and you know, uh, they wrote an article at the time and, uh, you know, they, whatever, whatever, he was from Australia, really cool guy. And they ended up naming me, uh, the writer said, an urban mixologist, because when I presented myself, when I first went up to present my drinks and my cocktails to the competition, the first thing out of my mouth, I don't, I don't know if it's because I was nervous, where they were like, um, you know, hey, you know, introduce yourself. And I was like, South Bronx. <laughs> and I don't know why. They were like, where you were from? Because I was so thinking about the guy. The guy had this great thing. Like, he's from Australia. Like, yeah. And I was like, uh, Blue River, South Bronx. And it was just, everybody was just silent. And I was like, uh. <laughs> and it was, it was a really awkward thing. But taking that, I guess the writer just wrote, I was an urban mixologist because that's all they knew of South Bronx. Mm, urban. Yeah. Um, and I remember I was livid. You know, I, it was great that I was in this 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 drink industry magazine and great PR. But I was like, but they didn't say the other guy was a suburban mixologist or yep. the other guy was a you know an elitist or you know whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. Like I ended up getting this this title and this moniker, and I was upset about it. And I had a, like an agent at that time. And uh, and she calls me. She's like, "Oh, did you see? You know, you were in drink and all these interesting mag." And I was like, "Yeah, it sucks." And she was like, "No." And she's like, "How many other urban mixologists do you know?" And I was just kind of like, "Nobody." She was like, "Why don't you make it your own?" Uh, and I think that's when I learned another side of the business about taking what you're given and and turning it into positive. Yeah, uh, that branding, that branding, branding. Yeah, yeah. I think that's when it became something. And so I wasn't gonna let or allow something that was used to almost slight me or, or belittle me um, become something negative, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, in every city, in every place in the world, and I've traveled all over, there's an urban area, a hood, you know, whatever you want to call it. So if if I'm going to embrace that, then I'm going to embrace that on, on a global scale. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I did, you know, um, when I started writing after that for, you know, for a, a magazine, travel magazines and, and beverage magazines, I always wanted to go where the culture was and guess where most of the culture was anytime you went to another country in the, the, in the urban area. Yeah, so I was yeah, like, yeah. so it was like me going to the favelas like in, in South America yeah. and graffiti and art and where that's where the good food was coming from. You know, even I've, I've been to China and, you know, uh, was blessed to meet Bourdain and like, mm -hmm. like, dude, like it's, you know, R.I.P. Anthony Bourdain. Oh, man. Yeah. That broke my heart, man. He gave me some of the best advice I've ever had in my life, you know. Uh, met him if you couldn't see, for the people listening, he has an Anthony Bourdain uh, yeah. tattoo. Yeah, I do, man. No, I met him in China, man. And, and I remember just that whole experience was scary for me, man. Like, you know, just being outside, you know, didn't, Spanish couldn't save me or, you know, Word. what I knew couldn't save me was an entirely different culture. And when I met him, uh, one of the most poignant things he had ever said was, um, you know, he asked me, you know, what are you doing out here? You're from you know, New York. And uh, I said, you know, I'm just trying to write, you know, I wasn't trying to be, you know, quote unquote, you're from the Bronx, you want me to dick rider, you know, like, yeah, I'm just trying to like, get all yeah. this stuff, but I'm not going to like, yeah, you know, and he uh, he was super cool about it, and I was like, yeah, I'm just you know writing some articles, you know, I'm just I'm just some kid from the South Bronx, you know, yeah. and he was like hold up, 
He's like, I'm just a junkie from Fairlawn, New Jersey. Mm. You know, and that, that hit me. And he said, you got a story. You got a distinct story to tell. And he's like, and they're going to pay you for it. And when he said that, it hit me. He's like, look, when a man, uh, this is Andy Bourdain, almost at the prime of his career, addressing to himself as a junkie from Fairlawn, New Jersey. Like, who would have thought that, you know, book sales and, and corporate sponsorships, and he basically was doing whatever he wanted at the time. And he and, and, and I got what he was trying to say. He was saying, if I just consider myself that, I would still be a junkie from Fairlawn. He's like the label that you put to yourself. So, yeah. And, and how you Damn, brand yourself. And yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm telling you that resonated with me forever after that. And probably one of my biggest articles, it was a four page feature in a, in a magazine, four full pages of write up on Shaking Up Shanghai. And it was about mm. the emerging cocktail culture in Shanghai. And I thought it was, you know, I just kept writing and I was like, this is, and I just, I think it's the most honest piece I ever wrote and they loved it, bought it. And, and then that was it. So I started building my resume as a, as an industry professional. And I was featured in some magazines. Uh, and then uh, I got a phone call one day and I thought it was a joke. Uh, it was a tequila company. And they asked me if I would be the Northeast regional brand ambassador. And I was like, yeah, whatever though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. I just, I just, I owned a small bar on the Lower East Side for Boss Tweeds. And we had just sold, thanks to gentrification. <laughs> they sold the building and I was kind of bummed out, man. And this came out of nowhere. And, uh, and I went for it mm. and I ended up getting the job. And so uh, for a while in my life, I traveled most of the US and being an ambassador, being a face of a company, which was kind of crazy. You know, yeah. you go back to that, I'm from the South Bronx. Like this shouldn't, yeah. you know, we, we, we maintain this imposter syndrome. It yeah. took me a while to get over Like, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm having lunch at the Four Seasons and like doing all these yeah. things and like, that's not for us, yeah. but, it, but it is. Yeah. And I think we need to need to wake up with that. So, um, you know, coming up was was crazy, man. But I just utilized the talents that I had and and took the opportunities that were given to me. I didn't I didn't forsake those. That's an um, amazing journey that yeah. you had. So as we were as we were talking outside, one of the things that you you told me, yeah, your pops is a pastor. Yeah, yeah. My so dad's a rev. Yep. yeah, that's a rev. So I I'm just curious about this. Yeah. What was I guess, what was your dad's kind of feeling about you working in uh, the club industry oh, and, and liquor? Yeah. He, like, he wasn't, he wasn't a fan I can imagine he probably wasn't happy with you nah, in from, a secular world. Yeah, no, from the beginning, I remember my dad used to see promotion. He saw I was making a little bit of money and stuff like that. Now, mind you, my dad's from Prospect Avenue. Bronx. Yeah, yeah, dad, the BX word. My dad at the time, you know, he was the, the president of the Roman Kings street gang, you know, in the late mm. 70s, it was all about Savage Skulls, and Roman yep. King, yep. And, you know, uh, Black Aces, you know. So he grew up in that. So um, my dad was a tough guy for most of his life. My dad was in the military. And, uh, you know, he just was like, okay, so this is great, but what's your real job going to be? But I got into that and he saw kind of the progression of what was going on in life. And, and he saw that I was making a living out of it. And I was creating a difference and doing stuff like that. And I remember... One day he was said he was driving on the uh, BQE or something like that. And he saw a sign and American Express had just came out with the American Express blue card. Yep. Ah. And so my dad called me. He said, yo, you need to sue American Express. Yeah, yeah. And I said, what? And he said, they took your name, man. And it almost <laughs> gave me like validity because he was like, that's your company's name, man. You need to go after these your brand. Yeah, man. And so, uh, you know, it kind of, it showed me that it was valuable to him. And he realized that it was a, it was a real uh, tangible thing dad had bought in yeah so uh and my dad is full supportive uh, my dad jokes around and says his name's purple and he's purple enterprise <laughs> subsidiary of his company but uh yeah no i mean just just his his come up alone you know being from prospect being you know from the bottom and you know my dad's a, an adjunct at cornell university my dad Fine. was a director department of health you know he goes by reverend dr bruce rivera like you know to get a doctorate and then still live in the south bronx like he never left so he still lives right there on Prospect. Yo, so. that's super dope couple things i want to i want to just uh re-emphasize right yeah. like you're dropping so many gems and so much knowledge here and the story, the storytelling is huge, right? It's something that I was always told too. It's like, yo, you got a story to tell, you got a story to tell. And I've shared this on other episodes and it's essentially now I've launched my own consulting business, right? Amazing. Based off the storytelling. Amazing. And I'm, I'm, I figured out how to, how to utilize that to, to drive my, my work and my passion. And so I think there's, there's something huge in that, that like, despite whatever you're going through, 
you you do have a story to tell and people will pay to hear it. And whether it's you actually talking or you developing a brand, someone wants a part to be a part of that. So I think that that's big. And I wanted to highlight that. The other thing. Um, yeah, I, th- I think we take that for granted. And just to add to that, yeah. we take it for granted stuff that comes naturally to us. You know, you know, we laugh, but you got a good jump shot. Guess what? Somebody gets paid to shoot basketball all day. Why? Facts. Because Facts. a lot of people can't do that. Yeah, you know, word. You can speak. There's people that lock up, you know, and I think a lot of times we, we belittle our talents, especially in, in our communities. You know, ah, stop singing, stop dancing, you yeah, know, ah, you're making all that ruckus. But guess what? They're paying somebody to do exactly what you do for free. And they're probably and they're probably not as good as you are. Exactly. Exactly. Yo. <laughs> no, exactly. Nor, nor do they have that hustle, right? That yeah, you're talking about, right? Yeah. So you can carry that in, into all industries. With that, right? I just want to transition really quickly into and in talking about hustle and talk about just like all the amazing things you yeah, have done yeah. to build your career. We're, we're in the in the middle of the action right now at this pantry, right? How'd you get involved with this work? You you and you and the other thing I want to mention that we haven't spoken about, right? Is you you talked about gentrification yeah. and and yeah. land being brought by real estate companies, right? And what it, so so I know you've been involved with some with some of the work of trying to fight yeah. back against that yeah. against gentrification. So talk to us a little bit about like the owning of land and, and community gardens and like how you're trying to flip that okay. um, for for the community. What well, I mean, just real quick, how this even started was, and I think that's. If you're going to take anything from whatever I say today, um, I was let go from that really awesome job. You know, that, mm. that brand ambassador job was the best job I've had out of my life. Word. And I got let go. They dissolved the company. I didn't do anything wrong. I was actually up for a promotion. They were gonna, I was going to be a national brand ambassador. Wow. And I got a phone call that just, you know, with COVID and everything, you can't fly, you can't work. So I was home for like a month and I was going crazy. I was I'm a workaholic, man. I like and so I started hearing about people that were hungry, people that I knew, family members, friends and family members. And so um, I was owning a coffee shop at that time. And I used the coffee shop as kind of a hub to kind of pack food and kind of drop them off and deliver. Uh, and I would call organizations to try to get donations. Like, mm-hmm. hey, uh, you know, we're packing up food for people and leaving them at their door, you know. And, and literally they would be like, what organization are you with? And I'd be like, uh, <laughs> concerned. Bronx people, <laughs> you know? and, yeah, yeah, uh, and they were like, "Oh no, you know, work yeah. with another organization." Wow! And so that happened, and I remember like three o'clock in the morning. You know, my last position. I, you know, I did very well, uh, and I, I just I was sitting on it, and I just invested. I took my money and invested in this idea, and I built you know a, a, an organization out of it, and you know got an EIN and filed the paperwork. And, yeah. And for the first two months, I funded. I mean, probably over fifteen thousand dollars of my own money just to feed people. Wow. Um, I didn't know it was gonna last this long. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, it's gonna yeah. carry us to the end of it, you know. Yeah. Um, but then it became something else, and people started volunteering, and people started getting involved, and. And we started working in garden spaces and then that became you know learning to teach people how to you know make food and use these abandoned community spaces was you know i kind of was like this is it this is what we need to do you know they're taking all the space and this land from us these safe spaces for children these places where we can actually grow sustainable food sustainability um, became my, my goal uh, so through a lot of relationships and through doing that work, man, y'all gotta pick up a book, look at us, you know, do follow the guides, man. And uh, there was some park land that had been abandoned on 163rd and Melrose. And uh, it was an abandoned community garden. And uh, we had reached out to, to the parks department, the Green Thumb, and they weren't gonna reopen it till like 2023. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that sucks. You know, this place is, could be feeding people. Wow. And what year, what year is this? That This is last year. Bro. Last year. Okay. This, yeah, this yeah. Saying, recent. Yeah, man. We just made a year coming up next next week. Wow, our man. Artists, Congrats. Started yeah. this organization about a year ago. And uh, and so <laughs> actually what we did was I ended up cutting the locks on the garden and went in illegally. <laughs> yeah, What's be, the statute of limitation be, on these I'm things? Be, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> even though we now have the contract in full standing and, and licensing, uh, <laughs> We originally didn't start that, but we needed to get their attention. And that's how we got their attention. I showed up with 30 volunteers and we cleaned up the garden. Wow. And uh, they came in, the police came in and, and I kind of was like, yeah, yeah. Press me, dog. Or you're going to have to get me a meeting with these people. And uh, we got the meeting. Yeah. Talk about that. Advocacy. I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say go that route. <laughs> I got wow. very lucky, but there was a lot of planning that went before that. 
was a lot of um, paperwork that had been done so yeah. that when the meeting did come, we were ready for them. Mm. Um, so I, you know, it, it was, it was a team effort, you know, even though I was going and they, to, and they saw you weren't going to stop. Yeah. And that was <laughs> the other thing. We weren't going to stop. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've really, I, I kind of took a stand there. You know, that was, that was my platform. That was my stand that I was willing to get arrested for it. I was willing to, to put it all on the line for that. Yeah. You know, that's scary, bro. But, um, but if you believe enough in something, you should be able to, to do that. You know, you can't tell me you believe in something if you're not willing to take your lumps on it. So, yeah. uh, so through that, through them, we acquired some more uh, abandoned spaces and we, re you know, revitalized them. We actually have a grand opening in one of our spaces, which is dedicated to art and giving back mm -hmm. to community and youth. Cookie um, Liberation is uh, mostly food production and uh, programming space for learning for individuals. Then we have another one on Genix, which we work with the Department of Education for programming and enrichment. And they're all used as distribution for food, bigger than what I could even imagine. Um, you know, what we've done, you know, we feed about 1,700 people every week. Uh, in the South Bronx. And Can you say that again, please? Uh, we feed about 1,700 families every week in the South That's Bronx. That's a huge deal. Yeah, yeah. Just, just coming here today, seeing, started, the, yeah. seeing the line around the corner, it was a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, it, it, you know, it's great that we can have that kind of outreach, but the fact that we have that much need yeah, it's real. That's real. And you know, but one of, one of the things that you said earlier when we first came that was so dope to hear, right? It's like you were trying to figure out how do we make how do we how do we make this type of opportunity, right? The food pantry, something that's more welcoming and that people are 100%. don't feel ashamed to stand online. And so you got the music playing, yeah. right? And and um and it just feels like that black party environment that you mentioned, right? And making sure that we were intentional about creating that space. Well, I think I think a lot of that is the details. We have to realize that, the, you know, the devil's in the details. You know, a pantry will always be a pantry. You know, the need will always be there. But we we really try to base ourselves as community organizers and builders. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that? You give the community um, outreach give them opportunity to help themselves so a lot of our volunteers come from the communities that we service um playing music you know not only feed the body but feed the soul man music, mm. music has been part of our culture forever whether you're latino whether you're african-american whether you're wherever you're from there's been a beat or some drum to your life um so playing music was just a it was a no-brainer you know making people feel comfortable um you know giving you know, we give away candy to kids online. You know, I, I tell people I was a poor kid from the Bronx, man. And I stood on lines and it sucked. You know, if your mm -hmm. friends saw you online and, you know, they would ridicule you or, oh, you on it. But everybody's on it. But, you know, you always kind of felt less than. Um, I always say that's where the seeds of low self-esteem start. Yeah. Place, you know, and unknowingly. But I think here we uplift them. We talk with them. We ask them how school going. You know, we we help pets. And, you know, it's just kind of embracing the community and knowing that we are a resource here to really uh, uplift and not just kind of take from them. Mm -hmm. So Burr. that's uh, kind of where we're at on that. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about your your trajectory and your and your your journey, just kind of this uh this dichotomy, right? So when you were a, like a brand ambassador and when you were, I can imagine that was probably a pretty pretty glamorous job. You were getting flown around the country, yeah. um, and now to do the work that you're doing, right with such humility and stuff like that was there a mindset shift like how were you able to kind of go from that to, to this because this is yeah no I, th I think I had to ask myself what was important for me mm. um, I really had to be realistic and sit down and say you know I could just sit idly by and watch you know so many I mean I can't even tell you so many things that just broke my heart you know mm. uh, the way that people were being treated the way that you know secondary you know, second-class citizen is a real thing, man. You know, knowing that a lot of these organizations and a lot of these, you know, these health structures are not meant for us. Underservice health, you know, you know, when they're talking about running your nearest city MD, ain't no city MD in <laughs> South Bronx, bro. Yeah. You know, ain't no, you know, it, it's, it's sad, but the, the reality is of testing, you know, we've reached out, we've done COVID testing, we've reached out to try to get elders, you know, uh, vaccines, just feeding them, just on, on a, on a basic level of health services, you know, and I, I really had to sit with myself and say, I want to use these skill sets that people were paying me for. How do I use that to use 
as a catalyst to, to really move forward and help my community, you know, and not worry about the check. You know, I mean, I was out of work for almost 11 months straight, you know, even though the same pantries that I was, you know, helping, you know, I think that was how we came full circle. We came full circle and, and what we're doing now, we're continuing to grow. It's not only about the pandemic. So one of the interesting things that you've been able to do is you've been able to purchase land in the Bronx. And I think that that's really powerful. I think that's one way to obviously combat gentrification. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that. If, if one wanted to purchase land, how do you even well, go about doing it? Well, I think it's, it's not traditional land purchasing. You know, there's a lot of different programs and a lot of um, ways that you can facilitate ownership or custodianship of the land in the Bronx. But I think more mm. of our people need to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, there are... Uh, Land trust, Bronx land trust is a really great thing where they actually purchase it, but they do need custodians of the land and you can par partner with them. You know, Green Thumb has the community green space initiative. You know, these are things that they can't really, they own this land, but they, they can't facilitate the proper management of this land or the uh, maintenance of this land. So they're looking for people. But what ends up happening is they end up going into the hands of or the corporations, end up mm. misusing or end up basically driving it down to be sold at a lower cost mm, which is boom real estate companies exact. come in yeah got so, it so it, it's it's very funny that the people in the communities that this is happening aren't educated on the fact that there are so many opportunities to maintain land and you know uh, or custodianship of land or uh usability you know community gardens can really take over spaces and maintain and do them without any upfront money at all because they become custodians and they have contracts with the state uh, or the city or um, parks department or uh, how long do those contracts usually? Usually it takes about a year. Okay. Uh, okay. A year to to you know you have to do some paperwork, some bylaws, and your organizational um, hours. We were prepped before we got there, um, and I think we brought a lot of attention to that. So um, we got kind of fast tracked. Ring. We rang the right doorbells, and we had some. Uh, influential council people teamwork makes the dream work we together right. we can is our motto and i couldn't have done this without the volunteers or without the help so uh at this point we've acquired 3.5 acres of land uh that is specifically used for community engagement and enrichment mm. and food sustainability um and i think when you come from a place of community enrichment it's different you yeah know, i don't own the land i don't it's not me my community you know, our community has a space, you know, we have, we open our doors to children's programs. We open our doors to, you know, uh, yoga and breathing and, and uh, self-defense for women. And, you know, we do this, mm. all this stuff. So um, it, it's, it's different, man. It, I, I'll tell you, it's, it's enrichment on a whole nother level, man. It's, it's about legacy. It's about, you know, what are you leaving? You know, it's, it's great to do well for yourself, but to do something that's sustainable, uh, you know, when I see people in the street and they thank me, yeah, you know, I, some yeah. Of them, I don't even know them, but they be like, yeah. you know, thank you so much. My mother was hungry last week, and y'all gave me groceries. You know, yeah. it's, it's things like that 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 really it, it, it's it's just almost undescribable, man. It's, it's just yeah. kind of, you know, I think more communities need to be like that, especially you know, uh, we need the help, man. So together you know it's like, it's like you know one ant can do something you get a whole bunch of ants together, Word. Bro. yeah so, the village yeah 100 yeah. i think we need to get back to that mindset i think in the age of uh you know like your youtube and your instagram and your i yeah. think a lot of those things divide us we need to use those tools to unite us and i think mm, that's that that's, talk, that's what yeah that's what what you know we're just a helping hand like that's 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 how we got the name we, we weren't trying to be anything else, but, you know, we're not trying yeah. to be a savior of a community. We're trying to lend a helping hand. And that's our mission. And that's how we got the name. And I like that distinction, right? We are not here to save the community. We're here to work with, with the community to lend well, a helping there's, hand. There's a whole structure of the savior mentality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially yeah. in the urban communities, I think a lot of us fall parallel to that because in a savior mentality, you need to kind of, uh, in exchange for that uh, relief, Yep. You uh, what are you giving them? It might not yeah, be yeah, money, oh, yeah. but is it your <laughs> dignity? Is it you know uh, photos or political posturing and photos mm. and you know and, and things like that? We don't realize that that's equity to these people in these yep. corporations. So we need to maintain that. We need to maintain our dignity. We need to maintain our self-respect. We need to maintain that you know we are humans. We are people and we're valuable. That's one thing that people are like. Oh well, they're just giving us. Yeah, but what are you giving up for that?
Yeah, no, nah, that's real, man. Are you that... gonna be a poster child? You know, we we look at these things, and everybody, you know, everybody remembers that the little African kid with the distended belly and the fly on his face, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. He ain't asked to be in that commercial, but he and, took, he took and you probably didn't give him, and you probably ain't give him no money for no, it. I guarantee but, you, they didn't give him any money for it. You know but something so imagery and iconic for us that yeah. you look at, and you're like, is a face of poverty or despair. Probably didn't even help him. Mm-hmm. So what are you giving up? What are you giving up in exchange for that? And I think as a community, we're so ready to give up those things. You know, we ain't going to give up a dollar because we hold that, you know, esteemed value. But where's the esteemed value for our women? Where's the esteemed yeah. value of our children in our community? Uh, yeah, you know, those yeah, things yeah. are what we really have to say. Hey, you know, that's what's important. And, you know, as a father uh, in our community, it's, it's just, you know, as a coach, as you know, as as an, you know, a cousin, a mm-hmm, uncle, whatever mm-hmm. role you play, it's essential. You know, especially now, you know, I think there's such little value on who we are as people, and even our life. You know? yeah. Like our life is is you know, as, as people of color, is just not valuable, man. Got to change that because and we can we it is valuable, but it, it can't only be valuable when I got a basketball in my hand or when I got a microphone in my hand. Yeah, yeah, it has to be valuable all the time. Yeah, and we have to believe that, right? So, so I, I I love I love what you're doing with 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 the community and just really you're, you're you're laying out a blueprint for other people to follow, right? And then and then you're you're bringing the community together to do this so that they can also teach your kids. Your kids is here, right? Like yeah. you just had the you know the young one here. I think your grandson too, no, right? My you, son. I'm your son, your son, your son, my your grandson, son. your son, yeah, 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 your son, right? Yo, like to, to Jason, everybody it, old. We try to open up opportunities for young people in our community yeah. who have community service, you know, that they can work in the communities that they live. Mm. You know, that for me was really important. Um, right now, we're working with the Department of Probation to try to get inmates who have currently come out, but teach them a skill like horticulture and agriculture and growth and give them a skill, not just do the time that, that they were demanded of yeah. or that they were sentenced to. Literally doing things in the community uh, that are valuable, you know, not only just taking from these people because they're in an unfortunate situation or that need something, but give them something, give them education, show them how to be community organizers because it's great that I can do this, but what, what's going to happen when I'm gone? Who, who's next up? Yeah. Who's next so, I mean, we, our perfect example, I don't know if you guys have heard of the Anti-Litter Project. Mm, no. The Anti-Litter Project started out of Mission Helping Hand. And uh, they're basically a group of young individuals that go around and clean up the streets in the Bronx. And yeah. they work with sanitation to try to get a lot of these underserviced areas, um, all of the uh, services that they need. Because somebody yeah. has to be a mouthpiece for that. You know, a lot of these sanitation, they don't know that these areas are dirty because people aren't making noise enough about it. So the Anti-Litter Project has been really instrumental in that and, you know, just becoming part of who we are. So Mission is really an umbrella, a think tank of community service and uh, and community outreach. So, you know, it's, it's been a blessing. Yeah, that's dope. And we, and we appreciate that. Just... One thing I'm gonna highlight real quick before we wrap, I, I, I love this idea of treating everyone with dignity, right? We like, just cause folks are locked up, there's, we still need to treat them with self-respect. They're still people. So I, I love all of that. I think we're about to wrap because we actually have to head over to the opening yes. of the uh, other community garden. Do you want to say anything real quick about that? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's, it's been a, a really a labor of love to clean up these spaces. You know, it's been a lot of hard work but it's dedication and our community sees that they're doing a valuable, visible difference. Mm. You know? uh, it's something that's there, but um, this garden in particular is, um, is dedicating art and, and, and beautification. And, and as you'll see, it's a small garden, but it's, it's a beautiful place, man. And I think when we need- Do you a- want to drop the address? Uh, yeah, people listening? it's, it's uh, 1001 Reverend James A. Polite Way on the Bronx right off 163rd. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to facilitate art programs and just kind of teach a lot of these uh, children and, and even the community that there are other opportunities. I got a I got an organization to plug you in with, uh, you know, Dream Yard. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Dream, yeah, Yard. Dream go- Yard, Bronx Works. Yeah, yeah, this is my, this is my people. We so. are in there, man. Right, and I that's love good. the stuff that they do, but it's, yeah. it's giving them the bandwidth and outdoor spaces that they Word. can do, especially yep. now with the current status, but we don't know inside, outside. Yep, the COVID um, situation. Yeah. Them, they can do classes there where they can 
facilitate programming. You know, that's our goal now. Yeah. Now that's dope, man. I know, I know we got to wrap, um, but uh, you know, before we wrap, if you could just let folks know like how to, how to, where to follow you, where to yeah. find you, you know, all of that really quickly. Um, yeah. You can check us out at mission helping hand, uh, no S.com uh, also, or on Instagram mission H H N Y C. Uh, we're also on Twitter. Um, just connect with us. We'd love to see you guys come out. We'd love having volunteers. Uh, we've had some organizations come as groups, as group mm. outings or youth events or community events. If you have a community church organization that wants to come out and do something, we'd love to do that. We're, you know, we've had fraternities, sororities, you name it, man. Fire. Yeah. It's all, it's all love, man. And I think if you go in it with the, with a sincere heart, man, I think it's, it's, uh, you get to see that. And so over years, it's, it's almost, it's more than what I could have imagined or fathomed. Um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, everybody comes like, oh, I started this. Yeah, but I'm not finishing it. But this fire is way bigger than that. I'm just, I'm just a, <laughs> I'm a little cog in the machine, man. Word, word. Uh, but if, if I can, if I can just be that spark or that, that, that movement, man, you know, that's, that's all I could wish for. Religion or not, whatever you're into, but you know, whether life puts you in places that you're supposed to be, even if you don't realize it. Mm -hmm. yeah, and life has given me a lot. Um, so now I think it's time for me, or it has been, for me to give a lot of those opportunities back because I was fortunate enough to get them. And you got to be not selfish and say, you know, what can I do? Yeah, y'all heard it. <laughs> yeah, okay. what, what can I do? Yeah. So, Blue, thank you for rocking out with us. Appreciate uh, you guys. As we close, Jay, if you could throw out our social medias for me one time. Yes, yes. You can follow live from the Bronx uh, on YouTube Facebook and Instagram at Live from the Bronx. You can follow us on Twitter at Live from the BX. Uh, check out the website www.livefromthebronx.com and send us an email. Uh, let it leave a review. Let us know who you want to see on the show. You can hit us at info at Live from the Bronx.com. I think that's everything. Season two, we still rocking out. We did it, y'all. Deuces. <laughs>